We are doing this thing on this Saturday, which is so unusual for us, where we sit down and we talk about Thrones. This is Let's Talk About Thrones. I am Richard Gunther. I think I'm Sir Richard from somewhere I never remember where. And I am joined, as always, by, I'll pass it to Jenny. Sir Jenny of Tired. <laughs> 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 uh, and yeah, and then that other voice is uh, this would be Sir Anthony of uh, we'll go with we'll go with the uh, North of the Wall, Sir Anthony of North of the Wall. Ooh, yeah, that, that puts you in some interesting company, Anthony. Yeah, because it's uh, the, the show's really getting interesting, and that's that's where a lot of the focus is going to start turning to, and it's it's starting to get really exciting. All right, so last we spoke, Joffrey. Is lying on the ground, gasping for his final breath. His mother is distraught. Everybody is going crazy. And Sansa seems to be whisked away mm. by the friend who came and uh, brought her the necklace. And turns out that there's something to that. Yeah. So <laughs> now, now this this is the first, I believe, the first and only, as far as I know, episode where it starts off with a flashback of what happened just previous, not a oh. previously on, but it actually cuts it back into the action about two minutes before the last episode ends and revisits the scene. So this might, I believe, this is the only time this happens in the show, at least thus far. Interesting. Yes. And I think that's just to show the impact and because they, they wanted to keep that action going because it is a very big scene, but they had to end it on Joffrey's death on the last episode because of the impact of it. But now they needed to bring that back and get you back into the story because things are happening very fast and furious. Right. So we're, we're reintroduced to the big, the big scene, Cersei yelling that Tyrion did it. Sansa escaping, and that's kind of where we pick the story up. So mm -hmm. Sansa escapes with the help of her friend. I'm going to put that in quotes right now, and is taken to Littlefinger. Now, you mentioned that Littlefinger had been um, curiously missing for mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, in fact, we learn in a very quick, I was surprising, I was surprised how quick uh, succession of scenes that there was a conspiracy afoot that Littlefinger was behind, that apparently um, Marjorie's grandmother was behind. And in fact, the poison came from that necklace that she was wearing, how it got into the cup. I think we still don't know that, but that all played out really quickly. And I'm, I'm surprised that we were all let in on that so quickly. And I was curious if that was also the case in the novelization novelization in the novel. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, uh, that's, we're not at the point where it's a novelization that comes Weirdly, in. A couple we years. are. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, it's it's very similar, except in the show in the book, it's a, a hair, but what a hair like a little tiara thing that goes in Sansa's hair that's that's uh, that's fiddled with by uh, Lady Tyrell, um, and then essentially everything else is 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 the same. Am I am I wrong, Jenny? That's how I remember it. 
Um, you know, I think we may be getting to the parts of the book that I I haven't read. Maybe not quite, but there started to be mm. some of the books, the later books that were like whole books about five characters and then a whole nother book about five more characters. <laughs> and that's where I gave up. <laughs> so we may be past my book reading. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot we changed your role in the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. She so went and from Jenny who read the books to Jenny who hasn't watched the shows. <laughs> it's a small difference. Um, so basically what happened is Lady Tyrell went and took the little jewel off of Sansa's necklace and she went and hid it to herself. And then at one point, Joffrey throws his empty goblet down in front of Lady Tyrell and then points attention back towards um, back towards his uncle, Tyrion. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was her opportunity to slip this into the cup. And of course, it's it's a uh, believe in the books. It's it's written as something that's easily crushed or whatever, so she can just kind of put it in there. It looks like a, you know nothing nothing's in there. Then when Joffrey or when uh, Tyrion goes and fills the cup again, now it mixes in with the wine. Then he drinks it and it acts almost immediately. So it's almost Jeffrey's own undoing because he went and slammed his goblet down in front of Lady Tyrell. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you gave her the opportunity, but. Yeah, well, so that, that's what I mean, happened. He gave everybody the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he started the whole thing with Tyrion, basically, mm-hmm. and that's that's what put this in motion to make it happen so so easily, if you will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that w- that was kind of fascinating to me, uh, Littlefinger. We still don't really, I don't think, we know his intention here, do we? I I think he makes his intentions pretty clear. He wants Sansa. Like I, I just I there's everything uh-huh. he's done since since uh, since uh, Lady Stark has left uh, King's Landing has been because he wants Sansa. I think that's just and this is the first time it's made like flat out in your face. These are my intentions. And she actually asked him like, "What do you want?" Or what, what are you willing to give up? And he said, uh, you know, I'm willing to give up everything for what I want. And she said, well, what do you want? And he says, everything. And he looks directly at her in kind of this little creepy McCreeperston smile. Well, right. And and I just attribute that to him being totally creepy. Yeah. And didn't read as much into that as uh, that was meant to convey. So that that's interesting. And the other thing that I thought was... Uh, notable is that whole thing with that guy befriending her. Yeah, he set that all up. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he then he shoots him through the heart and said to pays him. In which case, with we, a we great can, quote. Yeah, yeah. The, a, the quote of the a episode. Great quote. Money, Money buys a man silence for a time, but a bolt in the heart lasts forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. <laughs> yeah. That that seals the deal right there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right. So, um, anything else really in terms? Well, I guess let's also follow up on the discussion between Lady Terrell and Marjorie, where uh, her grandmother more or less confesses to being involved in Joffrey's murder to uh, Marjorie, saying, "You didn't think I was going to let you marry that monster, did you?" Right. Yeah, exactly. And then and she and she's almost more upset that she's not officially queen than the fact that she 
you know, lost her lost her parent husband or anything else. So, well, of course she is. I mean, that's why she was in this from the <laughs> beginning. Right? That's her whole goal is is the entire time. Just like she stated last season, I don't want to be a queen. I want to be the queen. Right, and, and uh, then she she you know she uh, kind of summa- summarizes the road to queendom, where she was she tried to be with Renly, that didn't work. Um, she tried to be with Joffrey, that now didn't work, and so she sets her eyes on Tommen. Tommen. Mm-hmm. It was like I, five. I was <laughs> like, yeah, creepily young. Uh, but they, you know, they create this, they create this, um, I, I guess I would call it like the scene of intimacy between them that they somehow play off to not feel as creepy as it really is. Well, uh, I don't, I don't remember the ages in the books, but You'll notice watching the show that Tommen's kind of a background character. He's just basically a young kid or whatever. And now is when you start seeing him and he he's young, but he's not like super young. You know, he's he's like 12 or 13 or whatever, whereas Joffrey was 17, I think, in the books and Sansa was 16 or whatever. So he's still young, but he's not he's not like kid kid young now. So she may have to wait a while before the the marriage would be consummated, but she starts the teasing process and starts the seduction of Tommen and starts the let's keep this a secret from your mom and all that kind of stuff. Like all the yeah. things a 13 year old boy wants to hear. Oh, yeah. And she plays it perfectly. Oh, yeah. Without even really understanding. I I got the impression from that scene that he doesn't even really understand what she's after. And yeah. Even though she comes out and says, you're probably going to be married to me, so let's get to know each other. Yeah. And that's her premise for being there and for for trying to get his trust. And ultimately, I imagine that trust will um, will allow or somehow encourage him to help her see him stealthily. So I, I found that whole scene interesting. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that he was a background character my notes for when we first see Tommen in episode 403 was Jeffrey had a brother (laughs) (laughs) Joffrey rather sorry yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah so and and the scene where Tywin is kind of grilling him on what is necessary to be a king, mm-hmm. I thought it was just wonderful. It was very, it was very uh, patriarchal, if you will, and I, I thought that the answers that he came up with and the the way that Tywin challenged those answers, and then started talking with him, essentially uh, getting to the part where oh. All right. I guess he's going to learn about the birds and the bees now, too. Yeah. This is a busy day for Tommy. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of that is um, oh, who plays him. Charles Dance plays Tywin Lannister and he mm-hmm. does it. He commands this scene. He commands the whole thing. Even with Cersei there, you know where your tension needs to be. And even when it cuts to Cersei uh, on like a solo shot and she's just in disbelief that they're talking about this over the the, the body of her dead son. Um, oh, it gets better. Yeah, he he yeah he he just he man he's 
he just commands his whole scene and it's, it's a great Tywin scene. It really shows the focus and the dedication that he has to making sure that his family, his lineage succeeds. Yeah. So a, a series of events transpire as he's lying in, I want to say lying in state, but that's not the right way to put this. And that's that's one of them. You see her grieving. You see Jamie come in and try to offer uh, his condolences. Cersei tries to get him to help avenge the mm-hmm. people responsible, whether they are or not. She doesn't care. She's convinced that they are. So <clears throat> he is asked to go after Sansa now. And he he doesn't. You know, he doesn't say one thing or another there. They also reveal, and I don't know that they explicitly ever stated this, that in fact, Joffrey was their son. They hinted mm-hmm. at that before. Has that ever actually come out in words previously? Before? Not mm. by them, I don't think. I think this is the first time they acknowledge it yeah. together. Because we had that whole scene where there was the discussion about, oh, look... All of these boys have dark hair. Well, well Tyrion Except has brought, Joffrey. Tyrion, Tyrion has brought it up with uh, with Cersei, but this is the first time okay. Jamie acknowledges it. Okay, I think right. pretty sure. Got it. Well, and what's interesting is uh, I use that word too much, but uh, I noticed that Jamie didn't even really react to that. He. He he doesn't ever say, oh, yes. He doesn't ever say, you know, it's tearing me apart, too. He just he's part of the conversation and he's listening as she continues to say that almost right. like he it, he uh, kind of denies it to some degree or doesn't want to believe it or whatever. I don't know. I I just thought that was kind of weird. Oh, but it gets weirder because he, he then tries to comfort her. She pushes him away and then, even though she actually, if I am remembering this correctly, she starts to kiss him and then pushes her away. We, we, we see in with some physical acting that they're, they're right up against Joffrey's dead mm-hmm. body there. And then he forces himself on her right there. Yeah. So bad in so many ways, and it's such an awkward scene. I and I, I feel um, uncomfortably unqualified to even discuss this scene properly. Hello. My name is Jenny. <laughs> right, I am a girl. So why don't I hand it to you? What do you what What's your take on this? Uh, that guy who's the brother of that lady raped his sister, right, in front of her dead kid's coffin. Yes. End of scene. Yeah. Yes. This but they is, try and make it more nuanced than that, which is yep, even nope. weirder, right? Yep, because she's nope. saying no she, she, while she's continually holding him and not pushing him away. And it's just, it's so uncomfortable. It's yeah. just, it's such it's, a horrible uh, scene. It's, it's pretty clear to me what's going on. And uh, uh, I like to not even remember that this scene exists because uh, this is so clearly a scene written by two guys. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, mm. that I don't even think I want to get into it because like I think the simple answer stands no there is no nuance 
when you take power away from someone, especially when they're grieving their kid, that's also maybe your kid. And uh, no, it's just bad. I, I, yep. would, I would just say that this is the beginning of the breaking of Jamie. Yes. This is where, because for this whole time, he's had this pure dedication to his sister that regardless of what happens, she's number one. And this is where he's, that nuance of their relationship is breaking down very rapidly and will eventually turn completely into a whole different thing. But this is, this is the first time where the, the hold of, of Cersei over Jamie starts to crack. Mm -hmm. Of course it could just crack with like, I'm going to go to Brienne. It's like, no, I'm going to do something horrible. Yeah, so this is uh, yeah, and and, and yeah, it, that's, spoilers. It's no, no spoilers. I'm just saying, like, he could go to that lady he likes. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yep. So yeah, I think that's yep. about about that. That's the only thing I have to say about this whole scene is that this is the beginning of the breaking of Jamie's relationship with Cersei. All right, so let's kind of carry on the other stuff that happens in the storyline through uh, through Jamie, really. Uh, and and to get there, we need we need to cut back to Tyrion, who is in a cell, mm-hmm. and Podrick is continuing to help him and communicate with what's going on with him. Uh, Podrick tries to be as loyal as possible, even admitting that he has been asked to testify against him. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion, who has obviously great respect and affection for the boy, basically says, you need to do what you know, you need to either get out of here or you, you need to do what they're asking you to do. You need to do what's right for you. Right. And uh, he does ask, however, that Podrick get his brother in there because mm-hmm. he really wants to talk to his brother. And in fact, his brother comes to see him and believes, I think, believes that he did not. Well, it's not even I think he states later that um, he believes that Tyrion did not do it. Well, you're you're missing a key point, and that's that Podrick didn't convince Jamie to go talk to him. Jamie was shamed into talking to Tyrion by, um, oh, his name just Braun. Braun shames Jamie into talking to him. That's right. That's right. Because uh, he wanted to see. That's right. I forgot about that. He wanted to see him, but it was it was while they were fighting, while mm-hmm. they were practicing, that he uh, Bron basically convinced him to help Tyrion. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Very good point. I forgot about that entirely. So Tyrion, uh, uh, Jamie meets Tyrion. Here's his side of the story. It's a very affectionate scene between two brothers in a very precarious situation. And it, it shows, especially following the the breaking of Jamie, like I just said, this is like almost a, a chance of rebuilding. And here he is with his brother that everyone hates, but he's never had a hatred for. And right. he, he's sharing an affectionate moment. And I think this, this these are things that are shaping Jamie into who he will become. Under very crazy circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, so so we have this situation now where Podrick needs to get away, mm-hmm. and now Jamie has decided that he is going to uh, to basically help Tyrion to some degree, and one way that he does that is to he decides to protect Sansa by sending Brienne off to find her and protect her. Yeah. Not quite sure how that's going to happen, but uh, Brienne has a new mission, a new sword, one of the swords. Yep. And uh, she names it Oathkeeper. I love that. She's She is, uh, again, I love... I love honorable people. I hope it doesn't become every honorable person's downfall. <laughs> but I, I love that uh, they, they're basically setting her up now for her next mission. And Podrick goes with her to help and to get out of the city. Now, this is Podrick who's been dedicated to, to Tyrion this entire time. He's a very good squire. He loves his job. He wants to do it to the best he can. He feels it's his way into the world to make a name for himself. And now he's he's basically handed over to a lady who is n- not a lady per se. Like she doesn't have any titles or lands, um, but she's still a prominent warrior that people it, it, it respect for that, but not because she's a woman. Who doesn't want a squire? Like she absolutely does not want Podrick to come along. He <laughs> um, feels that he will just drag her down because she likes to. She likes to be her own independent woman. Uh, she really do- is not fond of this, but they end up making a good pair. But we won't find that out for a while. But um, they. Uh, this is one of those uncomfortable situations. Like even the good people are just. These are two good people. Two honorable people being smashed together in a very uncomfortable situation. And it's just like, well, this is the new norm now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm curious to see where that goes and, and, you know, how exactly she's going to find Sansa. Like, I, I, where, where do you even start on something like that? I just don't get it. <laughs> Especially she has. Yeah, there's no. There's no like I don't I don't know. This is I believe she head start head, starts heading north because she figures Sansa got away. She probably headed to Winterfell, but it's not explicitly stated in the in the show. And uh, yeah, and this is one of those things where when when Jamie gives Brienne the sword, it's a nice little scene between them where he points to the page in the the book of uh, of uh, 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 <sighs> King's Protectors or whatever that uh, his page is basically empty and he's like, I still have time to fill this up. And if I can't fill it up myself because I'm stuck here, then I can at least send other people to help fill the pages. Cause I, I got to do what's right regardless. And what's right is to send you to go find Sansa and hold, hold both of us to your, to the oath. And then he gives her the sword. She's calls it oath keeper. And it's like every time these two get together and alone, they're intimate, like spiritually intimate even though they're not sexually intimate mm-hmm. like these are these are these two are a matched pair they're two deck two cards from the same deck you know i always think that she's who jamie wants to be oh right and then yes he, and, i like that and, and then he's, he constantly fails to be that 
and then he's who she wants to be known as. Like, you know, she, yeah. she wants that, that stature yeah. and renown and he wants her ideals and purity. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Two wicks on the same candle. They're, they're great. Yeah. I, I had a problem with the juxtaposition of him being so awful and him being so good and wonderful, literally minutes apart mm. in these episodes. Yeah, and and again, this is the breaking of the Jamie. This is this is him reforging who he is in 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 many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, one might argue he's doing a pretty shitty job of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, have we pretty much covered everything from that storyline? I think we did. Yeah. yeah. All right. How about uh, let's let's visit Arya for a short while. Mm. We have some fun scenes between her and the mountain. They find a place to stay by encountering someone whose land they are trespassing on, basically. And... Arya manages to turn the situation into uh, one where they have a a bed. Well, they have a barn to sleep in, at least a fairly dry place to sleep in and food. some food and uh, potentially uh, the opportunity for some work. But of course, the mountain turns on their hosts, the, steals the steals the, the money. Sorry, the the hound. I have that wrong. Um, I had it wrong in my notes too. Sorry about that. Uh, the hound steals the money, kills. Not doesn't doesn't kill the people. Does he? He hurts the man, hmm. and then they run away, arguing with her once again, asking why the hell did you do that? Uh, like happens in so many of these episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- this is uh, his, his, his overall justification for it is we will survive the winter. He will not. He's weak. He can't defend himself. They're not going to survive the winter, um, which may or may not be foreshadowing, which is PS also winter is coming, but it's not like there yet. Right. Like nobody's under the impression at this point that winter is like, imminently coming (laughs) so are you basically saying like maybe five or ten years from now this guy will not survive yeah that's pretty lame justification Um, but but this does show the quick wit of Arya taking the situation evaluating it seeing what she sees knowing where she is taking a guess and just diving straight into it and saying oh yeah we uh we fought for the for the riverlands you know right um so yeah, and oh, this is my dad, and like she just jumps straight into the role, and luckily the hound is smart enough to follow along at least to start with. Like could have really followed along a while longer, <laughs> just a little <laughs> bit maybe. I don't know, but um, but yeah, this is this is a great scene with those two, and it really progresses their storyline right along and their relationship along. And I think that's the last that we see of them in these episodes, if I'm remembering correctly. I believe so. Yeah. All right. So next in my notes, we're back at Castle Black. Mm. <sighs> yeah. They're, Sam they're, and Gilly. Yeah. So so we have Sam basically trying to protect Gilly 
worried about Gilly's fate around all these men who are taunting her a little bit and she's worried that they're going to take advantage of her. So he wants to protect her and ultimately ends up taking her to a nearby village. Right. Molestown. Molestown, which is kind of horrible. Just as nice as it sounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it lives up to Kind of horrible. This is, this is the episode where you realize that the men in the Night's Watch are not sworn to celibacy because they don't want them to have children. It's because they don't want herpagonocephalades running through the camp. Mm-hmm. Because, holy <laughs> crap, these are some nasty, nasty, like... And, and I'm not saying that the actresses aren't pretty or whatever else, but they're made to be disease ridden. Like they got postules on their faces. They're, this is not a happy, like how Roz escaped Winterfell. Like in general, if people are going between Molestown and, and Winterfell, I don't, I don't know. That's <laughs> like, this can't be just an isolated case of this one little hovel. that's just completely diseased and gross. And Gilly shows up, this wildling with the baby, the only clean person in the place, the only person that has any, like, seems to have any personal decency or dignity. Right. And they keep begging Sam to get her to work, and he he denies it the entire time. He's like, no, she's going to clean, she's going to cook, but she's not going to do other work. Mm-hmm. Meaning she's not going to pimp herself out. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and um, we are... Then, you know, treated to a couple of scenes where now he's all stressed out about what did he do? He left her there. Maybe Molestown is going to be in harm's way because the wildlings have just taken over some random village and she's going to be in danger. He needs to go find her. And John reminds him that, no, you need to stay here. It's it's important that you stay here. It would be dangerous for you to try and go out there. And he reminds John, yeah, but you went out when you needed to. And he's like, yeah, but you came and got me. So uh, kind of reinforcing their friendship and trust in each other. Yeah, it's nice in an episode filled with really cruddy things happening and really cruddy faces and stuff like that. Like the, the, the true partnerships shine very brightly. In this, and it's you always need one of them to carry you through an episode filled with like easily rape and grossness and just awful stuff. And and really, John and John and Sam are are true blue. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> what? <laughs> just. So, if we're going to continue the, the 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 story of Castle Black and how it goes yes. down, you see Alistair Thorne, uh, the the de facto commander, because they don't have one elected yet, uh, I believe, and he's he's just completely harsh on John. He didn't like John to begin with. He doesn't like the fact that he's of noble noble blood, even if he is a bastard. And then you add the fact that he's a bastard in on that. And it's just like, he's a better fighter than Alistair and he's got more drive and he's got more charisma. And, and John is just like the uppity. Alistair Thorne sees John as the uppity one. And John just sees Alistair as a pain in the ass. So 
their relationship, this relationship that, that builds between them and the directions it's going to go are insane. And John has this idea of, oh, well, these two people just returned back from the mutiny at Craster's. If the white or if the others, if the, if the, the wildlings find out that we only have a hundred people here, not the thousand that I promised them, they'll easily overrun us and we need to go and get rid of them. Alistair Thorne has the idea, well, is given the idea, well, let's send John. Cause if he dies, it's good. If he, if he makes it and comes back, then it's good. Like either way, it's good. But meanwhile, he's not here to win influence over the people that he's currently winning influence over. So let's do that. And that gets sent off. This whole series right here is setting up a major event later on and like several major events later on mm-hmm. and they're, they're pivotal and you don't, and I know Richard, you didn't see the story changing as much as it did in this episode with these people, but it's a major change. It's going to change the entire course of the history of the land in, in, in one particular episode. And mm, it's interesting. It's, Watching it again and watching the, the the nuance of how they portrayed it and how how they staged it and how the the hall is set with the uh, the, the the upper table and when Master Master Aim, uh, Amen is there versus when he isn't there and the things that he knows and sees and it, it's it's a very very big puzzle and man it's just beautifully put together in this scene to where you don't know what it is but watching it again after knowing where it goes it's insanely good that's kind of cool and what what i did notice here was you know after after essentially someone talks to the to thorn when he sees that thorn continues to be a complete jerk to john but this other person i don't recall who it was recognizes that John has the men's respect Mm -hmm. and Thorne does not. And he'd be better served to try and uh, kind of make good with him because at some point in time, the people are going to pick a leader. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's kind of, I think why you end up with this situation where Thorne's like, all right, fine. You want to go up? You can go up, but you can only go up with volunteers. You can't pick who goes with you. And then like half and, the force volunteers, like all the best fighters right. are like, we'll go. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, people, some people that have uh, been true to him, others that were just kind of, uh, you know, part, part of the, are they Rangers or I don't recall if, if they were all Rangers or not. I don't believe it's expl- explicit, uh, least stated. And I don't believe it really mattered because, if they go up there and they get slaughtered, Alistair Thorne has essentially gotten rid of all of John's top supporters. He's, oh, that's he's, a good he's point. fully eliminated those who would follow him and everything else. So it's, it's almost like a, a, a subtle coup before a coup can happen. It's like a pre coup coup. Okay. That, <laughs> that's a good point. Now, the other thing that I noticed is that I think there's a new face among them and he was yeah. the last to volunteer to join them. This is someone who was speaking with John earlier, also identifies as a bastard. And is that all we know about him at this point? In the show? Yes. I don't think we know anything else about him, but I could be wrong because he does look awful familiar, but that I'm not sure. Okay. 
And I don't All remember right. him from the books. That's that's one of the key things. I don't remember him from, just specifically from the books. So I don't know if he just muddled into the characters that is always loyal to John, or if this is something new for the show. And I, I wish I'd figured that out beforehand. So they're headed on a a mission to Craster's Keep. Mm-hmm. I think they say it's several days away, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And let's go to Craster's Keep since we're talking about that, who is the crazy, angry dude drinking from a skull? Played uh, by the actor who plays, who always plays a crazy, angry dude. A former ranger, right? Mm-hmm. Ah. Like rangers gone uh, rogue. Got it. Okay. Have we seen him before specifically? Like, should I have noticed him previously? No, I think he's not meant to be important. I just think he's meant to be one of the rangers that went rogue. Uh, so, so that's Carl. Uh, he's one of the one of the ones that uh, he's one of the mutineers, obviously. But he's the one that's kind of um, he's he's elevated himself to the top role. He's he's kind of the king dick of the the mutineers. And one of the things that you see is his his um, uh, uh, relationship with Rast, who was the, the one that was always harassing uh, Sam for being fat. Uh, he's, he's clearly over top Rast and Rast is still one of the, one of the characters that you know. So this Carl is one of the, he's kind of like the, the de facto leader of the mutineers. He's the big, the big, big talker. Well, and seemingly pushing his, comrades enough uh, in using rest as, as an example that they're a little bit they're, they're, they seem to be frustrated by it yeah in, like, intimidated you know, like, by him you know, not happy yeah. yeah yeah but speaking of him uh he ends up carrying a newborn boy mm. and uh, this is where this this entire set of episodes ends actually but let's Let's carry this storyline through since we're talking about it. Yeah. Carries a boy up, leaves him on, I guess, the the stone where they would leave their sacrificial boys mm-hmm. to be picked up by a White Walker. This is after Bran works into summer and goes running around because he can they can hear another dog, another wolf or whatever. They come across ghosts boxed up in a cage um, who's introduced a little bit earlier when Rast has to go out and feed the beast and it's shown that it's ghost trapped in a, in a cage and ghost is not happy about anything. So Bran and his little clan find uh, ghost locked up in this cage. And then of course they go to hunt for him and they all get captured because well, Craster's cube is full of a bunch of people that want to kill stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that leads that that's that scene right there where they're trying to get information from him, and they finally find out that it's Bran Stark, which is Jon Snow's brother. Um, that is interrupted by this lady that has just given birth to a boy. It's Craster's last boy, so you have to take it out. And how Rast knows where, or is it Rast or Carl, whichever one it is, that takes the baby? How they know where that baby's supposed to go? I don't know. But eventually, it goes to a pedestal. They come back, and it's starting to get snowy. Like and so <laughs> we end up with White Walker coming to 
pick up the baby. Yeah. And then this actually leads to the end of the episode, although we haven't talked about Danny yet, which I'm sure we'll get to next. But yeah, we'll still talk. We'll yeah. still go back and, um, and talk so about the White Walker comes, gets the baby and takes it north, presumably north, then more north then more north and eventually comes to like a Stonehenge of ice. Right. Ice <laughs> exactly. Hinge. Ice hinge. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, puts the baby on this little pedestal in the middle of that. And then you see uh, the Night King is introduced and he walks up amongst his his 12 followers and comes, gets the baby, picks it up. The baby almost looks comforted. And the Night King touches its cheek and its eyes turn blue and its skin takes a blue hue and end scene. Now it's a nice um, baby. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is interesting in so many levels. First of all, this is the first time that you've explicitly seen the the Night King. This is the first. Well, and how am I supposed to know that that's who that was? Because he the, looks different. Because he looks way different, and he, if you look at his head, he's actually got a crown of thorns growing out of the top of his head. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um. Although the, they don't use the same prosthetics for future versions of him. So it's, it's almost a little weird, but that might be, that might actually play in the story depending on, on how you want to theory craft it. Um, that uh, this is interesting in that it shows what, what was happening with Craster's babies, with the sons. That it's very, right. you know, it's not just a sacrifice. It's, it's a special sacrifice. They're not just like eating them or whatever. And, it brings to mind, okay, so what happens with L- little Sam? Because now little Sam is, is Craster's last remaining baby. You know, this is the last remaining son anyway. So right. so is there another drive to get there, to get to, to Gilly's baby now? And this also shows, it, it doesn't really show it explicitly, but you can almost get the sense, at least I did, that there's a palace, there's a, 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 a grand place where the the white walkers are ascending from they're not just wandering around the the wildlands there's actually like a central location that they call home that they consider their their base and uh that's that's an interesting aspect in and of itself i definitely did not read that into what i saw but that makes complete sense Right. I mean, well, I mean, I, unless they just have a bunch of ice hinges around, they just happen to wander across one. <laughs> so, right. This must be something. This yeah. must be some sort of gathering place, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. And once again, we have the ring, the circle, the the pattern of of circles that shows up randomly throughout the show that we still don't have any importance to. <laughs> Irritatingly enough. So we have a bunch of baby. Boys, actually a bunch of inbred baby boys that are essentially being brought in, as I can see, to become white walkers. Yeah, not I'm, not whites, white walkers, because the this is a little bit different. This isn't just the dead rising and walking again. This is a living soul being turned into a white walker, you know, like the blue eyes and everything else. It's just different. I think of them as right. like ground troops and officers. Yeah, essentially. You've got your infantry, which is just the dead bodies that they yes, raise. Yes, I believe someone else forward. is more qualified to talk about this than me. <laughs> 
and, and, and then you would have your your commanders, your uh, your lieutenants, and things like that that would actually be the ones that were chosen specifically for it and turn, turned. Yeah. Now, which is which is intriguing because it's almost the opposite of what you might expect in this situation, right? If they're being given these children. You might almost think that, oh, well, we, we can give these children to be uh, or we can use them to be our slave army or mm. something like that. But to, for them to be chosen in some way is fascinating to me because they're really just some some dumbasses inbred boys. Right. But I mean, th- this is one of those things where when it first happens, all the people around, all the ladies that are crasters, even the ones that are being raped at the time, like it's kind of a, a debauchery den. Um, they're all chanting a gift for the gods, a gift for the gods, gift for the gods. Well, yeah, cause the, the but they, because they've been brainwashed right. for that. Right. But is that the only reason that they're saying that or is it that an actual like pervasive idea in Craster's little hovel that these are, they're not just some other creature. They're actually uh, some sort of sub deity or, or over, you know, higher power. Like it's just, Mm. it's it's an interesting concept to think about. And I don't know if they ever really get that deep into it, but it's something I thought about reading the books and something I I thought about watching the show. Because they weren't like uh, give, you know, baby to the others, baby to the, to the white walkers, you know, baby walker or something like that. They were like gift to the gods. Like it was, there's a devotion in their tone. I'm I'm thinking of that Simon and Garfunkel song. They call me Baby Walker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, any, all right. We have um. That? Uh, that's that's all I've got on that one. Okay. Uh, next on my list, we have some Stannis and Davos stuff because no, you know, somebody we just shoot do. me with these two. <laughs> right. Right. Just- the only. The, the only good parts of this story thread in these episodes, I think, are the moments between Davos and the girl whose Shireen. name I cannot remember, yeah. who's Sh- teaching him to read. Shireen. Yes. Yeah. Another wonderful scene between them where she's basically just not putting up with any crap and wants him to be dedicated to his learning. Mm-hmm. And he gets this idea that he needs to write a message and have it penned as if it were coming from Stannis. Mm-hmm. What did I miss here? Who's he sending the message to? You didn't miss anything. Because that is something okay. that, <laughs> that, that... That's... that's, that's in, uh, that's slated for a later reveal as far as that goes. Okay. Um, but what I don't want to miss out of this is the actress that does Shireen and how amazing the job she is on doing this because she's, she's clearly young. She's clearly like 11 or 13 or something like that, you know, right in that age. But yep. every time she's in the scene with this, this actor who's been in so many, so, so many, many so many movies and TV shows and everything else. She commands him like her character and the way she, she acts her out. She commands the scene. She's, she stays in charge. Even when she's just this innocent little girl that wants to teach her friend how to read, she just 
she commands attention in the scene and really directs it. And I, it, again, I know I say this a lot, but the casting on this show is just stupid. How good it is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, they just did a really good job making her seem like a princess who was being raised to lead. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's really the important part about this. You can actually just take Stannis completely out of the situation and you have the same story. So, well, yeah, it's the same story as it always is. He's being stupid mm. and Davos is, Davos is the voice of reason that Stannis doesn't listen to being coached by a 11 year old child. Yeah. That's, <laughs> okay, and next. All right, so uh, one more small thing, I think, before we get into the big thing. And uh, I, I don't want to miss Tywin visiting Oberyn, who is surrounded by a bunch of naked bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tywin basically comes to, from what I can tell, accuse or I guess determine whether Oberyn was responsible for Joffrey's death. Oberyn denies it as my phone rings. <laughs> uh, that's Tywin Lannister uh, calling you for incorrect characterization of his plotline. <laughs> and and this ends up going somewhere. This scene ends up, ends up going uh, in a place that I never expected which is that Oberyn gets a seat as one of the judges at Tyrion's trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's, how bizarre is that? To he's, everything, there's a spoiler. I know, I know. It's it, this, this is a precarious situation. Yeah. Trying to talk about this. Um, Tywin knows that having a foreigner, having someone outside of King's Landing would be good for the trial, add legitimacy, and it keeps Tywin's eye on Oberyn, who has this, this, uh... Vendetta. Yeah, vendetta yep. against him because of what the Mountain did to his sister and uh, niece and nephew. So it kind of, you know, you're, you, the, the best place for your enemy is right next to your side, you know? Um, I believe there's a phrase about that. Uh, yeah, but I can't think of it, so I just went with Keep my Keep your own. friends closer, your enemies closer. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of what this is, and Oberyn sees this as more opportunity, because now he gets to be involved directly in the proceedings, and he can, you know, kind of be bear direct witness, not just as a lord, but as, actually as a participant. And it, it kind of works for both of them. And one of the ending lines, Tywin asks him, you know, you just here for... to." justice for for the wrongdoings or something like that and in in Oberon says no I'm here for, I want justice for justice like it's it, Oberon's not hiding his his desire to kill the mountain and to avenge his the deaths of his family members at all and these are two very confident men from two very different worlds and two completely different attitudes facing off and coming to a mutual uh, respect of each other. Mm. Not not how you saw it. Well, I don't know that I necessarily saw any respect from Oberyn to Tywin so much as recognizing an opportunity. 
Fair enough. And yeah. So anyway, and that's pretty much all that we know of that at this point. Mm-hmm. I think that's the end of that storyline. And then, of course, we have some story with Daenerys. Oh yes, this is a uh, this is this is very interesting in the way that this this whole thing plays out. Um, Danny approaches Marine. It's Marine, right? I'm pretty sure it's Marine. Yeah. She's, she's conquering so many cities, I can't keep track of them all. Yep. Approaches Marine. They send out a warrior. Her little wannabe plaything says, I'll fight for you because she basically turns everyone else down. She turns down Grey Worm because he's a commander of the army. She turns down um, her her two uh, uh, king queen's guard because, well, you're too important and you're too knowledgeable and... So finally, this new guy shows up and says, "I'm gonna, Dario." Dario, he he goes out there. This is handsome Dario, by the way, not not like greasy long haired Dario. <laughs> <laughs> Dario two point and <laughs> and he, he faces off with this this uh, dude with a lance in a, uh, on a on a mount and takes out the mount and the dude comes up from you know falls down lands right in front of him and he takes him out so the that battle is won. A little showmanship goes on, and she starts yelling to the people of Marine, not to the masters, but to the slaves, saying, "We have already released all these others. You outnumber them three to one. This is your city." And then starts bringing catapults or the trebuchets. I'm not they sure. They are trebuchets, yeah. and and this is my favorite phrase that I wrote down when I was watching this: trebuchets of shackles. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So, so she's she's not launching balls of fire or anything. She's she's launching barrels that are full of all the shackles that she's removed from other slaves that she's freed. And of course, the masters see this, and it's just like, oh, oh boy, okay, hmm, not good. Yeah, it's brilliant. And that they end up they end the one episode with the slaves looking at these, you know, the reveal of what's in these things. Mm-hmm. And the slaves looking at it and the people looking at it. And that's basically the end, you know, end scene or end episode. And it's very, very powerful. But then later we see that uh, you end up in uh, the, the uh, what do you call it? The uh, underground or catacombs or wherever uh, the the slaves are all kind of huddled together mm-hmm. and they're talking about how, you know, we, we really can't uprise because it never, never goes well. And yeah. there are maybe one or two younger, more naive slaves that are like, but this is our opportunity. We need to do this. And in walks Grey Worm. Dressed as with, a slave. Dressed as a slave, which I thought was really interesting, right? Like a clever way of kind of just getting in and not getting noticed, mm-hmm. potentially, if they were to be noticed. And uh, manages to apparently, like we, he tells them that they need to do this, that they need to to uprise and and uh, take control. That they can't be freed; they need to free themselves. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if that's going to work out well until a couple scenes later, when in fact uh, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the things that Grey Worm brought with him, Grey Worm and his little uh, cadre of people, they brought weapons. 
Right. They, I forgot they, about they that. Came they in gave there and, them, yeah, threw down a bunch of weapons and said, here you they go. Here's them weapons. Um, then you find and out. So here are a bunch of people who don't know how to use weapons and they're given weapons. And you even see like this big pile on a master and you figure, oh, okay, that's not going to go well because you have 10 people cam- coming at one person all with their knives drawn. Someone's going to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> But in fact, we learn very quickly that they end up being, you know, freeing themselves. And Daenerys is on a mission to punish the masters, despite a suggestion that perhaps that may not be the best approach. But she takes the same number of masters as were there were previously children slaves up on crucifixes and puts them up on crucifixes. And um, Daenerys may be pushing the line a little bit too much there. Like she's had a lot of success and this just strikes me as a big turning point, potentially. It's good that the foreshadowing flows through with the first viewing as well, because... Because as we said, she's 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 always two steps up, one step back, two steps up, one step back. And this is... Like you kind of get the feeling watching the show, watching the uh, Jor's uh, his reaction to it, and 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 it just this is this is this may be a bridge too far. You might have might might have pushed this one a little too hard, um, and there, there's certain to be a little bit of, of backlash for it. But it's it's very interesting how Mar- the whole story of Marine is. It's almost like the final crucible, the final trial of Danny before she becomes. Danny. And this is this is the part that sets that up. This is her signing up for the test. All right. Um, no sign of dragons this episode. I guess they didn't have the budget for that this time. It, they didn't really have the need for it because they're, you know, you're not going to take dragons into a city that you're trying to conquer and occupy and live in and use as your base because dragons are just going to destroy half the infrastructure. So Story-wise, it makes sense. Budget-wise, I'm sure it made sense. And it really flows very well that they had the slaves uprise against the masters as opposed to just bringing dragons in that would have just torched everybody. So, Sure. Yeah. But they weren't even set dressing. No. Like, they were just... They, they, they just didn't have them yeah. in at all. I think they mentioned them. There's one other point about this storyline that I just can't let go because it was another thing that I loved writing down. Literal pissing contest. <laughs> the, the showmanship that I had mentioned, yeah. <laughs> so Marine's knight comes out, their champion comes out, and, he, and the first thing he does is undo his trousers and piss on the on the field of battle, this little area between Marine and Danny's forces. And of course, at the end of it, uh, Dario, he returns a favor by pissing on the corpse of the (laughs) champion of Marine. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) I thought thought that was entertaining, if nothing else. And uh, penis count goes up by at least one. Yeah. So <laughs> by, by by only one. No no Darius no no Dario penis. No no penis. He, just uh, just the marine guy. Oh okay. It was one of the other. I wasn't, <laughs> the, uh, marine. <laughs> You're welcome. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, as Jenny returns for the color commentary. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. Um, so oh, overall, man. Richard, how are you with the these two episodes? Again, we're we're back into the pairs. The pairs just work out so well. Yeah. They flow so well together. Um, how are you feeling about about where the story is going? Is this uh, the upward trend or the downward trend? Or yeah, no. This was this was definitely two engaging episodes for me. I watched these uh, within hours of each other. I, 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 you know, I wanted to go from one to the next. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of these where I'm like, oh, I have one more episode to watch. Uh, it, it, there was such. It was a good cliffhanger with the episode 403 breaker of chains and it it led really nicely between these two episodes and continuing the story because really you know we talked about a lot of story lines that played out in these two but most of them didn't complete until that second episode and sometimes not until the very end of that second episode right so yeah I, I watched these two back to back Oh, rewatched them back to back uh, right before we, our normal recording time uh, earlier this week, and I on, I'm glad we we decided to kind of go the route that we did with the storylines and taking them all the way through because I couldn't tell you which parts were in episode three and which ones were in episode four because having watched them back to back, it just seemed like a, a long two hour episode that was just full of action and storyline and character development. Well, and it's funny you say that because looking at my notes, it's it's kind of surprising to me to see how much space there was between finishing out some of these storylines. I'm like, Oh wow. It all, it all really just kind of seemed like one story. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I also like the format that we've taken here now where we're really talking storylines, not a chronological presentation of story like yeah. we were doing it before. Uh, and I'd be curious to get listeners feedback on that as well. Mm, definitely. And that would be let's talk about thrones at gmail.com. Jenny, um, <laughs> did you rewatch these or did you read the summaries? What do you think, listeners? Uh, write us at <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about thrones at gmail.com. No, I just I, every time there's one of these episodes where some lady gets raped, I just like check the fuck out I'm, yeah. because I'm always reminded like it, it, this seems necessary because why? Like, and I'm not going to argue and say it should never be seen, but I just, it, it, it particularly loses me as a, as a viewer, even though it, and it just, even though it's only one scene in a thing, it also really lingers like a cloud over the episodes and yeah. you're, you're thinking about it and thinking like, great. So the way to show a guy breaking from a lady is by literally raping her. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I, we'll get to this later. More things will be coming later where you're just like, really? And this is the start of those for me. And as much as I enjoy these episodes, and there's lots of great stuff in it, whenever these episodes come, I'm just like, yeah. whatever. These two in particular show a dichotomy on just and I'm going to concentrate on this for another second here, but the dichotomy of the presentation of rape. Yeah. Because at Craster's rape is happening in the background and it's, it's set dressing and it's not pivotal to the story, but it it tells you what's going on and and gives you atmosphere and adds to, but it's never focused on. It's just in the background. You just kind of generally are aware that it's happening. Whereas the scene with Jamie and Cersei is just in your face and it just, it's, 
blatantly put out there and, it, and it's just uncomfortable and it's not set dressing. It is the set. Yeah. And, and also, um, like, I don't even know if it's better that it's set dressing. It's still just like, look, if this is a part of this fictional medieval world and I accept that. But it's just so, I don't know, it's so awful. It's For me, it's just like, it takes me out of the episodes and it makes me wish, like, we'd be on to other episodes. Like, it's just a very hard to watch and hard to leave behind thing. So I'm just like, whatever, let's get on with it. Yeah. Uh, final yeah. thoughts, Richard. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, not, I, th- I think I'm out of thoughts. This was th- these were two great episodes. I really enjoyed watching them. Looking forward to moving on with four oh five and four oh six. How about your thoughts, Anthony? I'm glad season three is over. There was a lot of muddling in the middle there where you needed to yeah. add story and you had to take some things to their logical conclusion. It could happen a lot quicker, but season four is really fast paced and it, it, I'm, I'm excited for that. Season five, I believe, slows down but finishes with a flurry. And then season six, by that time, you're beyond the books and uh, like completely beyond the books, really. And it's time to they just start pushing the story along. So we've we kind of like mm-hmm. the last speed bump is is gone. We've got one more little slowish part at the beginning of season five, but other than that, this is just it's full on like full speed ahead from here on. It's it's all story, it's all development. Every scene matters, and we're we're kind of going into a really really exciting period of the show. Yep. That. It, it, we, we, it's going to be hard to hold back not watching more than two episodes from here because they are going to start blending together and start feeding in very well. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good way of wrapping up this episode of Let's Talk About Thrones. Uh, if people want to provide feedback, what was that email address again? Let's Talk About Thrones at gmail.com. And if people want to provide you specifically, Anthony, with feedback, uh, how would they do that? At Ethan Kane on Twitter, E-T-H-A-N-C-A-I-N-E. And Jenny, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Send a raven. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, At J-E-N-N-I-E-J 23 on Twitter. That's the best way. All right. It is the best way, actually, because you're awesome on Twitter. I love the stuff that you post. Thanks. I lose three followers every time I post something. It's awesome. <laughs> it's the algorithm. Yeah. It's just, it's <laughs> yes, just the algorithm. Yes, definitely. Now, Richard, somebody would have to send a whole flock or a murder of crows or whatever ravens are to get to all your Twitter accounts. So You don't, actually. You can just go to one place because it's all aggregated at Richard Gunther. And there you can see the split mind that is my personality. <laughs> so enjoy. And all, all these are linked in the show notes, of course. Of course. And that is going to wrap this episode of Let's Talk About Thrones. Ta-ta! Ta!
Parity, U-A-L-M-I-S-E-L-Y.